0: Hello everyone, and welcome to our second podcast in the series we're running on handling tricky issues when conducting collective consultation processes uh, against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Jean Lovett, I'm a partner in the Employment and Incentives team here at Linklaters. In the first podcast, we considered when the duty to consult collectively was triggered. Today, we're going to be looking in more detail at some of the practical issues that arise when conducting collective consultation, particularly when you have got a workforce that is furloughed, or at least some of them are furloughed. In this podcast, I'm being joined by my partner, Gillian Naylor, and Beth Parker, who's an associate in our team. Hello to both of you. Hi, Jean. Hi, Beth. Hi, thank you. As we discussed in the previous podcast, collective consultation is required where an employer proposes to dismiss as redundant 20 or more employees at one establishment within a 90-day period. As we discussed in the previous podcast, collective consultation is required when an employer is proposing to dismiss as redundant 20 or more employees at one establishment within a period of 90 days or less. It's important to focus on what the redundancy is. Uh, And in the case of the TOLRICA legislation, about here it's dismissal for a reason or a number of reasons all of which are not related to the employee themselves so this is different to the redundancy definition for unfair dismissal and for statutory redundancy purposes and it could include for example measures such as the non-renewal of fixed-term contracts for cost-saving purposes as we discussed in the last podcast collective consultation must commence with the employee representatives at least 30 days before the first dismissal takes effect that's if you're proposing to dismiss between 20 and 99 employees but if you're proposing to dismiss 100 or more the minimum time frame for the consultation is 45 days and you also have to make notifications to Bayes with the same time frames um, and if you don't make those notifications to Bayes, that can lead to criminal sanctions so I've now outlined the high-level requirements for collective redundancy process. Jill, have any of these requirements changed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and the job retention scheme that the government has brought into place?
1: So, Jean, um, from a legal perspective, the answer is no. We haven't seen um, any legislative changes which would vary or suspend collective consultation obligations. So the requirements to consult and the timeframes that you've already outlined in which to do so they remain unchanged. Um, but having said that from a practical perspective, I think it's likely that, and in fact, I think we're probably already starting to see it, that the way in which collective consulta- con- consultation is conducted is going to differ from the pre-COVID world. I think that's particularly given there's been quite a substantial impact on, on ways of working. You know, so for example, as you've mentioned, people on furlough and indeed many people working remotely. Um, what I would say is that the existing collective consultation regime is not prescriptive about exactly how consultation has to be carried out. And so, as a consequence, employers sort of should have quite a good degree of flexibility about how they carry out the process, provided, of course, that the process they follow does meet the key requirements of the legislation, which obviously we'll talk about a bit more in this podcast.
0: Okay, so you hit the nail on the head there where you referred to the fact that the pandemic's had a substantial impact on our ways of working. Um, how See that impacting the collective consultation process yeah that's right Jane. we have seen quite a few impacts on how people
1: work um, and as a result i think that we can see that employers may come across some practical difficulties um, particularly with respect to their furloughed workforce probably from the outset of the collective consultation process so um, you know taking a sort of step back once the need to collectively consult has been identified um, the next step then is for employers to work out who they actually need to consult with, um, and this is going to vary for each employer. But it's going to be one of the following three options, which I'll outline, um, which are all kind um, of required or permitted within the legislation. So um, it could be with trade union representatives if the employees are of a description in the respect of which a, an independent trade union is recognised, um, or they could already be pre-elected or standing employee representatives. Who are authorised by the relevant employees to receive information and be consulted about the proposed redundancies, or it may be that actually um, there needs to be an election so employee representatives need to be specifically elected by the affected employees for the purposes of receiving information and being consulted on. But um, in that sort of um, the scenario where appropriate representatives are already in place, so where there are trade union reps or the pre-elected employee reps. Um the practical difficulties are, are more limited, but where employers have run an election process, I think, well, I certainly can see some crunch points where the requirements of the legislation might be a bit more difficult to square with the, the practical realities of having an absent workforce.
0: Yeah, I can see that there might be some quite tricky things to address. What do you think the, the actual crunch points are going to be then, Jill?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, first off, I think employees could be reluctant to volunteer and um, to act as employee representatives. Um, and I can see this particularly you know, where you've got workforces who have been absent on furlough, or indeed where employees have been working from home for a long period of time. Um, so in those circumstances, their day-to-day engagement with their employer may have been more limited, particularly I think in the case of furlough than compared to working remotely. And so I think there you could find that there's more of a psychological barrier um, to an employee taking on the role of an employee representative. Secondly, the the relevant legislation does set out a number of specific requirements regarding the election of employee representatives, Um, and that includes, in particular, that all effective employees on the date of the election are entitled to vote for employee representatives, and also the election needs to be um, conducted in a way that is,
0: as far as reasonably practicable, in secret. Beth, given the points that Jill has just raised, how should employers manage an election process?
2: Well, employers will need to give careful thought at the outset of the process as as to how they can communicate with those of their affected employees who are absent on furlough to ensure that they have the opportunity to vote. Um, So, for example, do employees have work email addresses which they can still access? And if so, how is the employer going to ensure that this address is being checked for the relevant correspondence? Do employees have personal email addresses that can be used? Or alternatively, does the correspondence need to be via post, text, or telephone? Steps are going to need to be taken to ensure that employees are receiving the relevant communications and have the opportunity to engage in the process. And it's important to note that if if communications need to be via post, Clearly, this is going to impact the timeframe both for the election and the consultation process.
0: So Beth, do you think there's any way around the requirement for a secret ballot?
2: Yes. Well, employers are going to need to consider how to best ensure that voting is done in secret and also that voting is only done by the affected employees. In the current circumstances, it's unlikely to be appropriate to request that the furloughed workforce travel into the office solely to vote. Um, But a postal vote system might be the next best option for voting in secret, although clearly this is going to have cost and time implications for the process. And there is always the risk that votes will get lost in the postal system. Another alternative is an online polling system, and that might offer the next best solution. But again, an assessment is going to need to be undertaken as to what's reasonably practicable to ensure that the votes are in secret and also ensuring that only eligible employees are participating. And this is going to depend on the software that's being used and also its functionality. Alternatively, there might be other approaches that can be considered. So, for example, an employer could consider voting by text using an independent party to receive and count the votes.
0: OK, thanks, Beth. So ultimately what you're saying is that the solution is going to depend on each employer's arrangements and resources probably the key message for me here is that taking the time to plan out the logistics for your communication process and uh, how you set your election up takes on a heightened importance and employers are probably going to have to build in some time to plan that because you just won't be able to run it as slickly as you would if you were in your workplace as normal one question that I think everyone will want to know the answer to is whether an employee who's on furlough can act as an employee representative. Jill, is that something that you could say a few words about? Yeah,
1: that's a good question, Jean, and that's um, one that I think quite a few people have asked. And the answer is yes, it is possible to act as an employee representative whilst on furlough. Um, However, if someone who's going to be a representative is on furlough, um, you and probably the employee too, to think about whether they can, in fact, discharge their obligations properly whilst at home. Um, We'll come back to this a a bit later, I think.
0: And a question that's um, unrelated to that question is whether acting as a rep will prejudice the employer's claim under the uh, job retention scheme in respect of um, the proportion of pay that the employer can claim back. Beth, um, I know you've been thinking about that a bit.
2: Yeah, so whether a representative is fully or flexibly furloughed, the guidance that's been issued by HMRC to employers does confirm that employees who are union or non-union representatives can undertake duties and activities for the purpose of individual or collective representation, and this can be during the hours which they're recorded as being on furlough provided that in doing so, they're not providing services to or generating revenue for or on behalf of the employer or any linked or associated organisation. On this basis, our view is that if someone is discharging their role as a representative during a period of furlough, that would not prejudice the employer's furlough claim for that period.
0: Thanks. So the legal answer is yes, it's fine. But practically speaking, um, employees who are furloughed may be less willing to act as reps than those who are not. Um, also, if someone's flexibly furloughed, I can see that they may have quite a strong preference to discharge their duties as reps whilst they're actually working, rather than during the part of their their time when they're furloughed.
2: Yes, absolutely. These are points that may well come up in practice. Yeah, okay, thank you.
0: Moving on, um, Jill, once you've got the reps in place, how do employers need to go about cons- conducting the consultation meetings? Um, are you know particular formats that need to be followed given the current circumstances and um, so jean once the reps are in place then the first formal step in the consultation process
1: is to then provide those reps with certain specified information in writing regarding the proposed redundancies um and, and that kind of specified information will include for example the reasons for proposals um, numbers and descriptions of employees who it's proposed to dismiss as redundant and the total numbers of them. Um, it also would include proposed methods of selection for um, and carrying out of dismissals, um, and also some information about agency workers and the type of work that they're doing. Um, and this information even needs to be delivered to each representative personally, um, sent to an address nominated by each representative by post. Or in the case of a trade union representative, um, it can be sent by post to the union's head or main office's address. In most cases, um, the current addresses of the elected representatives will therefore need to be available.
0: That sounds terribly old fashioned to me. So sending things by post or delivering them personally is just stuff that's not been happening in um the last Weeks and months are these strict requirements a bit out of line with um, you know the way we're all operating at the moment. Um, I'm sure employers are going to be asking us how legitimate some of the alternatives they may come up with are uh, in respect of personal service or postal delivery. Um, so, you know, my view is whilst they're not strictly permitted by law, if the reps have asked to receive information by email or have expressly agreed to do so, taking sort of approach is probably relatively low risk what do you think about that
1: yeah jean i I totally agree um and then to i think going back to because i think you asked me sort of multiple questions to begin with so going back to whether there's a particular format for consultation um, so whilst the employer has to consult with representatives with a view to reaching agreement on ways of avoiding the dismissal or reducing the number of dismissals and trying to mitigate their consequences there's actually sort of no mandatory format for how that's done. So where feasible, um, having regard to government guidelines, then in-person meetings could be possible. So for example, if the reps are attending work in any event, or if travelling to meetings is not a barrier to attendance. And um, if not, then there are many other ways that effective um, consultation meetings can be conducted remotely um, as we're all getting used to, you know using video conferencing or telephone conference calls. So all of those kinds of methods would be possible when it comes to the actual consultation part of the
2: process.
0: Yeah, I can see that um, online meetings would work relatively well for small groups of reps. But I do know that some of our client companies have representative bodies that are, you know, 20, 30, 40 plus um, representatives across a large workforce. Um, how would you manage that, Jill?
2: Yeah,
1: um, I think mean, it's sort of definitely going to want man- uh, meetings to be in a, in a manageable format and also make sure that they actually fulfil the purpose, which, you know, taking that back is to allow proper engagement between reps and management on the issues in question and also, you know, needs to allow for the representatives to have um, an appropriate opportunity to contribute to the meeting. And, you know, that will involve asking questions and, and sort of raising points. Um, I think. If you are in a situation where you're setting up a new consultation body, then thinking about the sort of size and meeting arrangements, I think, to consider at the outset. Um, but if you're working at how deal with a sort of existing consultation body, um, where maybe there's a sort of large number of representatives or there's a sort of or, I mean, a previously established way of doing things, um, maybe may need to kind of revisit those arrangements. And so for example, it might be necessary to divide the representatives into groups. And then consult in a sort of waterfall type manner so for example by establishing a sort of national group of representatives who can speak back to local site representatives um, and i think you know sort of as you would have done before with an existing body of representatives been working with them to kind of come up with a mutually acceptable approach is it's always going to be the best approach to that
0: yeah i think that that makes sense beth How do they make sure that the reps have got good channels of communication with those they are representing? Um, Because, you know, at one level, making sure there's good management to rep communication is only uh, a part of this picture.
2: Yeah. So it's obviously essential that the reps need to be able to share information with their constituent employees and also seek their feedback and questions on the process. Um, Reps will also need to be able to update employees on developments in consultation and to pass down the responses to any questions that have been raised. And with employees absent on furlough, thought is going to need to be given as to how this can be done. Um, Engaging with those who are acting as representatives about what resources and platforms the employer can offer and what the reps themselves think would work most effectively is likely to be a sensible approach. And this upfront engagement should also help mitigate the risk of later complaints from the reps.
0: So what sort of things um, should employers be considering, Beth?
2: Where physical meetings aren't viable and employers can't easily be contacted through normal work channels, so their work email or their work phone numbers, the reps may wish to resort to using their colleagues' personal details, so their personal email addresses, mobile phone numbers or home addresses. This does raise some potential data privacy issues. So first, employers should check whether their employee privacy notice allows them to process personal email addresses or mobile numbers. If not, consideration should be given to seeking consent on a one-off basis for personal contact details to be provided to the rep. An alternative and less time-intensive process could be to ask the employees to provide their contact details to the reps themselves.
0: From what you've said, Beth, it, it sounds like uh, any process that relies on using employees' personal contact details is going to be a last resort and employers should strive to support the reps to do their job without that being necessary? Yes, that's correct.
2: So for example, something employers can think about is whether video or telephone conferencing details can be set up and distributed on behalf of the representatives, or maybe whether it's possible to set up a mailing list, group or site which keeps the employee's details private, that allows the representative to communicate with their constituents Um, A balance is going to need to be struck in each case based on the circumstances and the employer's resources. And the employer should also take care to ensure that whilst it's facilitating the necessary rep to employee communications, it shouldn't be involved in them and it definitely shouldn't seek to influence them.
0: Thanks. Lots of what we've talked about so far has um, the effect of adding a lot of time to the consultation process. How is that going to tie in with the mandatory timeframes, Jill, and what are the implications for an employer who wants to expedite the process because they feel they really need to crack on with their redundancies?
1: Yeah, so I, mean, I suppose particularly for a, a furloughed or dispersed workforce, it's going to be important um, for employers to start considering the practical implications of running a collective consultation exercise sooner rather than later, um, you know, sort of, and thinking about all of the stages of the process, so all of the things that we've been discussing on this podcast, around setup sharing information how that's going to be gathered and how this is actual consultation is going to run um, because all of that is going to be probably slightly more difficult and maybe more time consuming than it would have been in a, in a pre-COVID-19 environment and I think as to you know, what are the implications well I don't think any of the challenges that we've sort of discussed um, are going to provide any kind of valid defence for an employer who fails to consult adequately or indeed for the required period and um, that sort of requisite 30 or 45 day minimum period that you mentioned at the beginning.
0: Listening to everything that both of you have said today, it seems to me there are two key takeaways. One is that you need to be much better prepared. Uh, for a consultation process in this environment than you might have been in normal circumstances. And secondly that actually you really need to have a good working relationship with the reps uh, so that you can work with them to make this happen as smoothly as possible. So thanks Jill and Beth and uh, thank you to everyone who's listening in to this. If you have any questions on the issues raised please do contact uh, Jill, Beth or me or get in touch with anyone else you know in our team, who will be happy to help you. This is, as I said, the second in our uh, podcast series. In the next one, we'll be discussing fairness and redundancy selection in the context of collective consultation uh, in a situation where some of the workforce has been furloughed. Thanks very much, everyone.